This is our uh, fourth session on the Heart Sutra, and we're just starting off by um, reviewing or just answering questions around the, the handout that we gave out last week, which is um, a scan from a book called The Dharma by Kala Rinpoche. It's an outline of the five skandhas. So, Mahisha, you said you had a question. Uh, yes, there's a section on view, um, and, I, and I wanted to understand and it broke down into these, these different viewpoints, and I just wanted to understand that section a bit better. View. I can't remember exactly what it was. Do you want to Right, yes, we've got that section. View based on the perishable aggregates. Uh, that is a belief in the self, so the view taking the perishing collection and and um, assuming that that implies a self. Yeah. And, uh, but that, I guess all those views, I could understand like having extreme views is, is, is not a good thing. Extreme view, yes, of um, nihilism or absolutism. Yeah. And it, are these looking at different views uh, to avoid or views to try to cultivate? How, how um, in what ways are we setting out the, the view? Because I could understand the others. Um, I've got my got my notes here. Well, on one side, say eternalism, you'd say that the skandhas exist permanently. That would be eternal. That would be extreme view on one side, mm -hmm. and the other one, the, on the nihilism, would be that the, the skandhas don't exist at all. So finding a way between those two extremes is is um, what they're talking about. Um, I think I've got a. Yes, this, this maybe gets, gets I think I've, I've already said this one, this is from Huangbo. Um, all of these phenomena are intrinsically void, and yet this mind with which they are identical is no more, no mere nothingness. By this I mean that it does exist, but in a way too marvellous for us to comprehend. It is an existence which is no existence, a non-existence which is nevertheless existence. So this true void does in some way exist. That would be the middle way between those two extremes. Not sure if that answers your question, but anything else on this before we launch into so just a little further down it says views are further distinguished as either innate or acquired. And I, I would I guess at first glance I'd assume that everything is acquired somehow. That there's nothing that sort of that, that They're not born with a view. Yeah, that's a good question. But you can get conditioned. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, I guess if you under under acquired views, you'd have all the afflictive views. Um, 
there are some views. What, I, what I've got in my, my um, marginal notes here is that there are some views that only meditation can dispel. Um, some that are acquired you can abandon through understanding, but then there are others that are deeper, you could say, which in this would change the whole being. Um, that's why we start with the breath, because it goes beyond our intellect. You know, we, we're working at, at a low, deeper level, um, and maybe that's what they mean by um, innate, as in sense of the ones we're born with versus the ones that we acquire in this lifetime. It's probably not not quite a accurate translation in the original Sanskrit. Of it. Could be, yeah. But, but I do have an interpretation of that in terms of innate. I can see what they're getting at, but um, it's, yeah, it's like between it, you can misunderstand right. the so translation of words, yeah. Too much. Um, right, so innate, I was just thinking, like, for the Greek philosophers, they, um, I think it was Aristotle, that there were different temperaments, you know, sanguine, melancholic. Yeah, that's right. So, I think we are born with certain tendencies. Tendencies. So mm -hmm. you could have an anxious tendency. You could have just chilled out tendency, and so that your worldview can be colored by that um, innate um, yeah. Yeah. temperament. Even though ultimately it's it's it is mutable mm -hmm. because if we work through deep the deep kind of work that we do on ourselves through meditation, mm -hmm. yes. Nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this is a perfect. This whole viscount is a perfect example of you can't put one ahead of the other. You know, they're a, they're a dynamic um, interaction. Yeah. I just wanted to, I think, speak up a little bit. Um, with innate, maybe to think about the view that we sort of it's forgotten that we through meditation now bring to our attention rather than acquired that we... Do you know, mean like a subconscious view that just uh, wants to meditate you really? Something, yeah, like forgetting who we are and why we are here or something like that. Maybe they think... It, that, that that's innate. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Not expert enough on it to be able to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Shall we move on to um, some? I think some people find this breakdown useful and interesting, and other people don't want to go there. <laughs> and that's fine. If you find it useful, use it. If not, um, you know. Yeah, I find it just it takes you away from your practice. Yes, that's what I agree with. Yeah. All right, well, we'll, well, this part of the sutra that we're going to look at today doesn't, it, it only touches briefly on, on the five skandhas. There's a point where we can say it, it comes to it. But it's, we've gone through this part of, um, of the sutra where it's, it, seems to, it seems to be negating everything. No eye, and nose, tongue, body, mind, no colour, sound, smell, taste, touch, and so forth. But then at the end, we have a kind of shift in register, and we have this last but... Um, so know that the body sat for holding to nothing whatever, but dwelling in prajna wisdom is freed of delusive hindrance, rid of the fear bred by it, and reaches clearest nirvana. <coughs> All Buddhas of past and present, Buddhas of future time, through faith in prajna wisdom, come to full enlightenment. Know then the great Dharani, the radiant peerless mantra, the supreme unfailing mantra, the prajna paramita, whose words allay all pain. 
This is highest wisdom, true beyond all doubt, no end proclaim its truth. Gate gate para gate parasamgate bodhisvaha. So have, having gone, gone from all this, this, this repeated negating, pulling everything out from under us, to making assertions, you know, something, you know, going from the negative um, kind of means of, ration, of reasoning into this very affirmative part at the end. Um, so this is the part that we're going to just have a look at today and hopefully have some time at the end to talk about. I think I don't have quite as much material this time. So first we just look at the first six lines. Um, so know that the Bodhisattva, holding to nothing whatever, but dwelling in prajna wisdom, is freed of delusive hindrance, rid of the fear bred by it, and reaches clearest nirvana. So, so as I said, after negating form, feeling, thought, volition, conscious state, consciousness, and stating that there is not even wisdom to attain, the sutra now asserts that the Bodhisattva and this we can say, um, either it's referring to Kanon, who's the protagonist of the sutra, or some versions they make it into uh, plural, meaning any, any bodhisattva, is freed from fear by dwelling in, in wisdom. This is what this part says, because bodhisattva is um, dwelling in wisdom, she's free of fear. So my question here for people is, what in this passage is the key phrase that links it to what has gone before? So I'll just read it again. So know that the Bodhisattva, holding to nothing whatever, but dwelling in prajna wisdom, is freed of delusive hindrance, rid of the fear bred by it, and reaches clear as nirvana. What's the phrase here that, that links it back to all that negation that's come before. Well, nirvana is a negative word anyway because it means extinction. Extinction? Of, uh, it's extinction of the, um, <coughs> of the passions. The suffering, yes. So, suffering. Partial wisdom? For, for me, yes. it's holding to nothing, whatever. Yeah, yeah, so it's a very specific... I mean, you can link it to prajna wisdom because prajna wisdom is the wisdom of going beyond. But specifically here holding to nothing whatever. So in a sense, this is a continuing on from where we left off in the previous one. Okay, so the Bodhisattva has let go of everything and therefore what we, she is, is um, dwelling in Prajna wisdom and freed of delusive hindrance. So um, holding to nothing or whatever, you could say, it's another way of saying not attached anywhere, um, even to the attainment of wisdom. Um, there is no attainment. That's, that's the point here. Um, so all seeking is dropped. All seeking is left behind. And um, in, in one translation, um, uh, the Tanahashi Halifax they use um, a phrase for bodhisattvas that, that um, tr sort of translates as it. like one who is helping others to come to awakening. So already the, the focus is on um, now helping others to awaken. Because one is free from hindrance, now one's perfectly equipped, you could say, 
to, um, to help others. Um, we could, you know, as I said, we could say there is no, there is no attainment and therefore there's no um, seeking. That's all dropped and left behind. Um, Master Shang Yin talks about no attainment as an actual practice. Um, I'm not sure how that works because what would bring you back to the mat if you're not seeking something? What would bring you back to to the mat? What brings you to the mat if you're not seeking something? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I've got some thoughts around that. Uh, Can you hear this, Adrian and Sally? Yeah, okay. All right. So I, I guess it's for me my thoughts around attainment is that there's a point A and a point B. So there's, uh, you know, different places. And I guess it, um, the, the whole Prajnaparamita Haridaya saying the other shore, right? It, make, it makes us perceive it as a place away from us. But then actually the attainment, it, um, one way of thinking of that to dispel that attainment, you know, perception is actually whatever you're trying to seek is not somewhere over there, but it's, already here. So that can bring you back to the mat when you realize that it's not, you know, um, a destination that you need to go to, but it's actually the journey itself. But that's still an achievement, even to realize that. Yeah. Yeah, but then there's a step beyond having realized and thinking, I have realized, where, where there's no longer any sense of somebody realizing something. Is yeah. it just part of the journey? The journey every time you get to the map is a different journey. It's never the same. Right, because it's a different moment. Every, every yeah. moment's different. And yeah. It's not achievement. I'm personally not sitting there to achieve. I'm there to, to on the journey. I'm on the journey. And whichever path I might go might be the wrong one. I might have to return back and go again. Or to, to let go of what is you can perceive as being in the way yes. right here yes, that's um, we talked last week about the balloon and if you if you um, there's the same air on the inside of the balloon and the outside of the balloon um, and so there's no, really no difference but but the the membrane of the balloon gives the illusion that there's something on this side and something on that side but when you pop the balloon then it's all just the same air um, here's, here's what, um, what uh, Master Shen Yin says. Sentient beings speak of attainment in practice because they think there is wisdom to gain. But the more you practice, the more you will realize that you are not so much gaining anything as you are leaving behind afflictions, attachments, and self-centeredness. The more you let go, the less there is to attain. When you reach true liberation you will have left behind everything. There is no longer anything to, to attain, nor anyone to attain it. Yeah, I mean, he's talking about a, uh, uh, an exalted state. I think that the, you know, the, the bodhisattvas is considered to be ten different levels of bodhisattvas and deepen, deepening levels of, un, of awakening. And it's only the last two who have so that the ninth and the tenth that have completely lost a sense of self. So, so you can see from that how advanced it is. But if we, if we contemplate 
us, Xing Yin says, if we contemplate no wisdom and no attainment in our lives, then um, it becomes more just a note. You know, we notice afflictions, reflect on them as they arise, and then let, let them go as much as possible. So we tend to emulate the Bodhisattvas, even if we're not at that stage. Um, uh, so the Bodhisattva doesn't attach to act, their actions or to sentient beings. And we try just to calmly encounter whatever arises in our lives, whatever karmic things come up. Um, that's, you know, it's just um, greeting or meeting everything that comes with a sense of um, uh, equal mind or equanimity or just dealing whatever, you know, acknowledging this is, this is our karma in this moment and how do we work with that in a kind of skillful way. <coughs> so that that's a sort of no attainment as practice. So it's pretty pretty simple and, and practical. <coughs> You're right. It's not attainment. It's about the more you sit, the more the defilements and all evil things just drop away from yeah, yourself. Yeah, dropping away, sitting. dropping away. Let things yeah. drop away. Yeah. Just surrender to the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, <coughs> Could connect this to the phrase in the Diamond Sutra that that prompted Master Huai Nung's Great Awakening, the, the Sixth Ancestor. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. Or another, there's lots of different translations of this phrase, and another one is takes away the the um, what do you call it the uh, uh, what is it called that that point part of speech? Arouse the mind. Imperative. Another way of translating it is, the mind arises without abiding. The mind arises without abiding. We think that's the natural functioning of our true mind, is to arise without abiding. Uh, it's mirror-like, you know, it just reflects whatever it appears, appears before it. Um, so it's not something, it's not that we have to arouse the mind so much as if we can get out of the way, then the mind will arise and, and we will be non-abiding in that arising of the mind. So it's like the, the non-abiding is inherent in the mind. Um, or you could say that we, when in perception itself, that, that non-arising is inherent. It's like another way of talking about, sorry, non-abiding. It's another way of talking about emptiness. Um, this, this complete malleability or... or Impermanence or or flowing nature of the mind. When you mean when you say abiding, do you mean um, uh, identifying with? So the the mind can arise without you identifying with what happens. Right. Is another yes, yeah. Okay. Or a non-attachment is another. So like way. my heart beats, but I have no attachment to the way my heart beats. So why should I have attachment to the way the mind thinks? Yeah, because could yeah next minute it could stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and then not having any. Aversion to that. Or you can look at it just as an organ performing its function rather than this is me. Yeah, it's, it's part of the perishing collection. It's that you know, it's the collection of stuff that makes up this this moment of experiencing things. Mm. Um, one way we can connect this teaching to what we do here in the Zen Center is that you could say that our koans that we take up 
all the practices really, but especially the koans, are like like doors into that that place of non-abiding. Um, and the, they're all they're all different. They're all different doors that we can walk through. So, um, uh, does a dog have the Buddha nature? Is one door. Um, what is this? Is another door. Who am I? Is another door. What is the sound of one hand? Is another door. But they're all doors in, into essentially into the same place that is no place. That's that's not fixed. Um, at the same place that the breath practice is taking you. Yeah, yeah. There's 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 no there's only one place to go. <laughs> <laughs> So it's and it's realizing, <laughs> you know, it's realizing that that there's nowhere to go. That's that's the point here. Um, the problem is, you know, we talk about prajna wisdom, and it, grammatically, prajna is the object of a sentence. You say um, dwelling in prajna wisdom. It sounds like it's an actual place, right? But in fact, it's not neither the subject nor the object because it's prajna functioning is us in this moment, you know, couldn't be speaking if it wasn't for that. So um, one, one time when the Buddha was asked by a, a practitioner, what is deep? And he replied, this is from the Prajnaparamita's sutras, and he replied, Prajna. And then the student said, well, okay, but what is Prajna? And the Buddha replied, deep. Prajna <laughs> <laughs> just been doing. Um, just the doing or just the not doing? Yeah. Um, somebody else, as it was then, teacher said, you can't say prajna is, is the nature of prajna is seeing into emptiness because prajna is emptiness. Um, so it's, it's... Is it a state rather than a place? Like a state of being? Even that is... Just pinning it down too much, you know. It's it's um, that's that's where where um, you can have a, you can have an intellectual understanding of of prajna, but then it has to be a practice understanding which takes you beyond the the words. Um, dwelling in prajna wisdom, which comes in the sutra, we could say, um, is resting or depending on what is fundamental. You know, and then it goes on, says, is free of delusive hindrance. So that means free of obstacles or free of whatever gets in our way. Um, so you can frame that in different ways. Free of our dualistic thinking, free of all that comes out of our preoccupation with this mirage of the separate self. So all of that stuff that causes us suffering um, by by... Find, by non-abiding, we can find a place of freedom from that. And for most of it, it's little flashes, um, but, but we don't live through that, live that all the time. We, we experience it, and it gives us a, a sense of what is possible. But it's not, it's not completely um, stable as it would be for you know, a Buddha bodhisattva. As usual, um, Thich Nhat Hanh just puts it very, very clearly and and uh, accessibly. He's talking about the hindrances, free of, um, free of delusive hindrances. This is what he says. Um, These obstacles are our ideas and concepts concerning birth and death, 
defilement, immaculateness, increasing, decreasing, above, below, inside, outside, Buddha, Mara, and so on. Once we see with the eyes of interbeing, this is interconnectedness, these obstacles are removed from our mind and we overcome fear, liberating ourselves forever from illusion and realizing perfect nirvana. Once the wave realizes that it is only water, that it is nothing but water, it realizes that birth and death cannot do it any harm. It has transcended all kinds of fear and perfect nirvana is the state of non-fear. You are liberated. You are no longer subject to birth and death, defilement and immaculateness. You are free from all that. So last week we had this diagram of consciousness with, with a wave forming one personality and um, at the bottom were these this um, persistent eye awareness and then deeper than that, the alaya vijnana. And in some models there's also the ninth consciousness at the bottom of that, which is like a, in, in Tibetan they call it rigpa or sort of universal consciousness. And you could say that the whole wave is water. It's all that deep fundamental consciousness, um, every, every single part of it, even the part that is born and dies. And when we see that, when we can see that we're nothing but water, then um, that then the birth and death, success and failure, all of those things no longer um, are like sticky hooks that 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 get us caught up, um, and that's the freedom from fear, freedom from a sense of having to protect ourselves against something. Um, but as usual, Tikhonhans is a particularly um, easy easy to access way um, when the once the wave realizes that it is only water that it is nothing but water it realizes that birth and death cannot do it any harm so to talk a little bit more about the fear rid of the fear bred by it um, when we're talking about fear here we're talking about our, um, um, existential angst um, fear of losing what we have, fear of not getting what we want, um, fear of sickness, old age, death, loss of control. Um, we all have our own particular take on this, but it comes back to this, this feeling of um, being threatened. And we're seeing this all around the world at the moment um, with, uh, with covid um, with the, with uh, how people are reacting to the protests around Black Lives Matter, um, the people themselves who are feeling um, so threatened by um, what is happening there. And so just, just really recognising how precarious that makes our lives when we're... When we're um, full of this fear and of different kinds. Um, fear around our health, fear around our security, our wealth, our property, uh, all those, those things that are in the realm of form, the material realm, but then also our ideas, our opinions, our perceptions, especially our self-perceptions, how they can be threatened by somebody criticising us or um, pointing something out to us that they feel we have done wrong, all of this, um, uh, we can 
is tied up in the sense of of um, proposing that there is a self there in in the midst of those five skandhas. So, and then and then um, along with that, of course, becomes become, comes the concept of other that that is in some way intruding into ourself or threatening ourself. Um, so you know, in terms of how do we practice with that in our in our zazen, um, you know, noticing just just making paying attention so that we notice as much as we can what what is that we're attaching to, um, and being as aware of we care as we can of that, and then and then um, there may be momentary times when we can experience letting go which will, will strengthen our sense of, of that no-self and how we can re- we really can rely on that. Um, and that's where we come to the next line, and reaches clearest nirvana. So um, literally, um, nirvana means extinction. It's, it's the word that's used for a flame that goes out. So extinction of classical Buddhism, extinction of craving. Um, also translated in different versions of the sutra, perfect peace, um, or, or Thich Nhat Hanh uses the state of non-fear. So what's what's left when you take away the fear part? Um, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, and there's said to be in Buddhism three kinds of, of, of gifts. You can give people material things, you can give them the gift of the Dharma, but it's said that the greatest gift is the gift of non-fear. In other words, a deep transformation within our very um, being, um, in other words, um, some degree of awakening. That's, that's really where the non-fear comes from, direct experience of the truth. And it says clearest nirvana. Now, in the original... Um, the word that's used is more ultimate. And you can say in certain traditions there'll be different ki- levels of nirvana or kinds of nirvana. And ultimate nirvana is talking about the nirvana of the bodhisattva. In other words, not extinction of, um, of the Theravana tradition, but coming back, awakening Seeing, seeing the emptiness of the five skandhas, but then returning to samsara to help others to awakening. And um, yeah, there's a line that we chant when we do Master Hakun's chant and praises are then, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. That's the attitude of the bodhisattva, not let me out, you know, I'm out of here, this is... This is um, it's Saha, the Saha world of impurity and, and, and darkness and everything. No, this world, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, you know, because it's all how we perceive is uh, where impurity, impurity and impurity come from. So staying here in this world and doing what we can to um, uh, help each other to awaken it, really. Um, Next four lines, all Buddhas of past and present, Buddhas of future time, through faith and prajna wisdom, come to full enlightenment. 
So now we've gone from, okay, the Bodhisattva, Kanon, and now we've got all Buddhas of past and present put their faith in this prajna wisdom that's mysterious and can't be defined, come to full enlightenment. Um, so people probably know that in, in the Mahayana tradition there is these, these vast cosmologies of um, multiple universes um, all existing simultaneously, um, multiple universes in the past, multiple universes to come, each with um, thousands of Buddhas, realized beings, um, and it it's really gives us this, this image of this vast, this vast, um, these multiverses, you could say, sometimes referred to as Buddhaverses. So you can say countless world cycles, count, countless um, worlds, planets, you know, and and all of them have their Buddhas, and they, all those Buddhas came came to that place of Buddhahood through faith in this wisdom beyond wisdom, this wisdom of um, of emptiness. Um, some of you may know that in those Mahayana sutras, there's also this Buddha, female Buddha called Prajnaparamita. I, I didn't think of this until I was sitting this morning, but I have a beautiful image. It's from Java. It's a it's a very very famous surviving image from when Java was Buddhist, and it's of the this this deity of of Prajnaparamita, and it's one of the most beautiful pieces of artwork in the world um, of this female Buddha sitting in meditation with the most beautiful, serene face. But the teaching is that, that she, Prajnaparamita, is the mother, the womb of all Buddhas. All Buddhas come out of, of Prajnaparamita, of this, this wisdom beyond wisdom. Um, so... Maybe I can find an image and, and um, email it around to people. Thank you. Um, and the word here in our version is faith in Prajna wisdom, um, but the original is more is closer to dwelling or depending on. Um, uh, and again, so we have this this apparent contradiction between non-abiding and abiding. <laughs> so we're abiding. To some degree, we're abiding in prajna wisdom, but if you think of prajna wisdom being something, um, something that isn't, it doesn't give you some kind of solid ground. But it's, you could say it's a process or, or a um, journey, like an unfolding. Is that? Like the wave. Yeah, like the wave. Yeah. <coughs> um, when it finishes, come to full enlightenment, and. The original for that is Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. And it can be helpful just to break that down. So Anuttara is, is unexcelled, utmost, complete. Samyak is true, correct, accurate, right. And this is the same word that appears in the Eightfold Path for the, for the um, we, you know, we say right view, right aspiration, right speech. That, that right is this word. And so it may actually means more cl closer to full or complete. Um, and then some, somebody, some means altogether or thorough. And then body means awake. And some, some translations use this altogether um, to 
formulate this great perfect enlightenment as being including all beings in it all together not so much in the sense of thorough but in a sense of uh, along with everybody else and that's a very it's a very helpful way to to understand this because we're not leaving anyone behind when we come to this level of awakening we they're all included in that in that um, awakening process and we express this when we chant the three refuges because we say all beings without number no 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 we don't <laughs> <laughs> i take refuge in uh, buddha and re resolve that with all beings i will understand the great way so that's that's we, we keep needing to remind ourselves of that. You know, it's not this attitude of, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get that alignment and then you know <coughs> we'll be done. But no, I want to bring along, I want to bring everybody along with us because how can there really be true peace as long as there are people who are suffering and beings who are suffering? Um, and then no, then the next part. Know then the great Dharani, the radiant peerless mantra, the supreme unfailing mantra, the Prajnaparamita, whose words allay all pain. This is highest wisdom, true beyond all doubt, know and proclaim its truth. So again, after all this, this taking of stuff away, now we're being presented with this mantra and we're being told, you know, how, how um, uh, we can rely on it. Um, Dharani, people know what a Dharani is? Chant. Chant. A chant, oh, yeah. So a sacred utterance from other traditions known as a magical formula, usually longer than a mantra. So it's when we have we have the Dharanis that we do in the Zendo, the Shosaimyo and the Jaihishan Dharanis. One way of understanding it is this is. Um, Kind of the definition, syllables with symbolic content which when recited create a state of mind through repetition. So very specifically that they are particular syllables which act on us um, that, that have a particular effect on our state of mind. So uh, syllables with, um, uh, it's not just saying, we're not just saying toaster. Know, where they, they're, they're syllables that have been chanted for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years that, that have a particular effect on the mind. Does that lose potency in translation? Because I would presume the syllables were... That's right, and that's why we don't translate them. Um, you can, can, but they, and that can be helpful to understand what might be behind it, but also that, that it's the sound working on us. Um, in Chinese, the word that's used for Dharani is Mengzhou, and that Ming stands for vidya, or uh, the opposite of avidya, or ignorance, the one of the poisons. So it's you know, this notion of um, an enlightening phrases. Um, and then, of course, we have mantra, which is a short dharani, you could say, a prayer, an incantation, sometimes translated, I think, a little bit wrongly, as spell. <laughs> or, but this one, I think, is helpful in terms of how we understand these things. Um, one definition of a mantra is protection for the mind. Protection for the mind. Um, after writing these notes last night, um, 
I remembered a wonderful Japanese film by Kobayashi called Kwaidan, which is a series of um, ghost stories. Um, and what in one of the stories, it's about this blind musician who, he, um, uh, who, what's his name? I think I wrote it down somewhere. Um, it's Hoitsu or something like that. But anyway, he, he, what, he, what he does when he performs is he tells the tale of the heke, this great, this kind of epic story of uh, battles. And um, he gets, he gets a, a samurai comes to visit him and demands that he come to, to, te- to recite his, his um, account of the battles. Um, to the, this court, and so he goes obediently, follows the samurai. He's, you know, he's just a poor musician and blind to boot, and um, it, but it's very long. It takes a long time to recite. He has to go back night after night, and the, the monastery where he lives, he's sort of looked after by the monks. They notice that he's disappearing each night, and so one time they follow him to see where, they go, where he goes, and they find that he's going to the graveyard, and they realize these priests realize that he's in great danger of being ripped apart by these ghosts from a previous time. And so they get him back in the temple and they inscribe his whole body with, with the Heart Sutra. So they, they sit him down, they take all his clothes off and then they just write out the Heart Sutra again and again and again so his whole body is covered. And they say, well, if you're covered in this Heart Sutra, they won't be able to see you in order to destroy you. So you're protected now. And so he goes back again to keep the, reciting this great battle but unfortunately, the, the priests forgot his ears. They forgot to write the, the sutra on his ears. And so he goes there, and they can't see his body, but they can, they can just see his ears, <laughs> like the rest of the body has disappeared. And so they rip his ears. In order to, uh, to fulfill his, uh, to show the emperor, this, this ghost samurai, to show the emperor that he's, you know, kind of obeying, obeying his rules. He, he rips the guy's ears off. And so then there's a trail of blood back to the, when he returns to the temple. But he does survive to tell the tale. Um, but that's, this is how this sutra is seen in, in um, Asian cultures as being an extremely powerful form of protection. You know, you could see the whole sutra as the Dharani, and the, the final piece is the mantra, this gatte, gatte, para, gatte. Um, and so if you're ever in a place of feeling really that your mind is, is threatened to chant this whole sutra or the, or the dharani, the, the, the mantra at the end, or the kanon, it also can be a powerful thing. Um, and so it's interesting that the word mantra etymologically is related to the word for mentor. So it's like an inner mentor, somebody you can rely on, somebody you can turn to um, uh, in times of difficulty for, for a sense of, of safety. Um, but in the end, it's also just, it's a word, you know. So, so how does that work? And we'll look at that in our discussion at the end when we get to the end of the, um, these notes, which are ne- nearly finished. So... Um, a supreme unfailing mantra whose words allay all pain. The word here used in the original for allay is, allay is, is like pacify or calm or heal. So it's a powerful, a powerful word there. Um, true beyond all doubt. 
Um, and in other versions, they like emphasize it. So the original translation, it sort of says true, not false. And so some versions that you'll hear that true, not false. So or genuine, not illusory. So we've been taken through this whole path through all the, the skandhas and, and the 18 datu and the 12 lengths of dependent colorized and told all of them are illusory, all of them uh, you, you can't rely on them when we try. Okay, but there's this mantra. It's true, not false. You can, you can absolutely rely on this. Um, know and proclaim its truth. So that word true, true, we're being emphasized again and again. And again. Um, know and proclaim its truth, and then we get the gate, gate. But in terms of mantras and dharani, you could say that to do, to do a mantra or a dharani is a form of meditation. And so very much depends how you do it. Um, you have to be, um, Thich Nhat Hanh says somebody, you have to, it has to be a coming together of the body, the breath, and the mind in deep concentration. So um, something you do in your body, it's not just a mental thing, but bringing these three to body, breath, and mind, or body, speech, and mind is another way of saying it. Um, and this, this, this sense of the dharani as a form of meditation takes us right back to the very start of the sutra where the bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of prajna wisdom saw the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that cause all suffering. So we, we've got this sense of, of affirming and reconnecting with that, that start of the sutra. Um, she, it's to the meditative state of kanon from this deep place, from this place of the unity of body, speech and mind she utters this mantra, mantra which um, you could say, again, is the amazing thing about the construction of the sutra is it concentrates the whole teaching of the sutra into these six phrases, six words, gate, gate, para, gate, parasam, gate, bodhisvaha. And the way it's constructed, it builds, each line builds on the line before, gate, gate, para, gate, parasam, gate, bodhisvaha. So it's all building, kind of building towards the final svaha, which is an exhalation, you know, it's, it's a release. Um, gate, gate, gone, gone. So in other words, gone from suffering to liberation, or gone from duality to non-duality. Paragate, gone beyond, gone to the other shore, the shore of liberation. Parasamgate, completely beyond. And as I mentioned before, that sam there, uh, like in somebody, it means all or together or thorough. So we could say fully going together or gone to, together to the other shore. So everybody is, is... In one of the sutras it talks about the there being a community ferry boat. So we're not crossing the river in a little kayak, just us, paddling, madly. It's a, it's a bus. It's a bus. It's, it's, it's a vessel that is designed to take everybody across. And then Bodhi, awake, means awake. So the, that light that we have inside us that's at fun, functioning even when you don't know it. Um, and then Svaha, hard to translate, um, rejoice is, is one way. Um, so like hallelujah. Yeah. That's or the amen. one I like because, yeah, that gets that sense of 
of affirmation and re rejoicing. Yeah, so Alleluia, Amen, you could say. Or, um, all hail, how wonderful, joy, just that sense of, it's like the ah of the Buddha on his great awakening, you know, just how amazing, how wonderful, wonder of wonders. Um, and then gate, usually translated as gone, but it can also actually mean arrive. So it seems two things that are opposite, coming and going, it seems to say be translated as both. So you could translate that final um, uh, mantra as arriving, arriving, arriving all the way, arriving all the way together, awakening, joy. That's the translation, that's Tanahashi's translation. So that's all, um, and I've just got, we've just got some questions now that we can, I know we're probably running out of time again, um, but do you three want to um, continue together, yeah. or do you want to stay on either ways? Um, I'm happy either way. Um, Adrian yeah. and Sally, what would you like to do? Join the group one or just talk to amongst yourselves? You've got the questions right, Hanya. Yeah, I've got the questions yeah. here. Uh, seeing there's only like three of us, maybe we should just join in with everyone else. Yeah, and, and while we're there, can I just make a quick comment that came to mind when you're talking about the, the dharani that gets written all over the person's body to protect them. Um, of course, when the Heart Sutra is recited in Japan, isn't it recited in Sino-Japanese? So, so it is kind of more like a dharani for the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, it is. And I discovered, when I first heard it, it was in 1982. I'd just been to the workshop in Sweden, and I went to a session with Sasaki Roshi that was held, actually held at Aiwera. And on the final night of session, we circumambulated the Zendo and chanted the, the Heart Sutra in, in Japanese. Sino-Japanese, yeah. Sino-Japanese. And I just found myself weeping, um, hearing it. It was like this, just this amazing experience of, of coming home, feeling like I'd come home. Um, so it very much worked on, you know, because I didn't know what it was, the words were. I didn't, I had no idea. I mean, I was, but, but the sounds of the words had that, had that effect on me. But yeah. yeah, the interesting thing is that the people reciting it don't know what it means in terms of intellectually. They're getting that sound, as you say. Yeah. yeah, and that the it is ancient language too. So even if they are speakers of Japanese, most of the chants are um, like us reading Chaucer or something like that. Mm. Um, the other thing that Richard Choke just showed me yesterday is that there's a YouTube clip now of a hundred Zen teachers from all around the world chanting the Heart Sutra um, mm. for people wow. suffering. And I, I'll, I'll get Richard, if he hasn't done it already, um, to put it on our um, page, our discussion page. Um, but, you, you know, it's, it's one of these Zoom things. So you see all hundred little square boxes with everybody oh. chanting. <laughs> but it, that's a response. And then the other thing is that as a tradition is copying the Heart Sutra is considered to be a, devo a devotional tradition um, within uh, Buddhism. And uh, we did it once. Do you remember, Sally? We did it for, yeah. um, was it the tsunami? Yeah, yeah. And, and oh, no, it was the, the Japanese um, disaster. The, that, that tsunami, yeah. That, that tsunami and uh, earthquake. 
And I brought a book along for um, everybody to have a look at now, which is just some. I just, just just find it so inspiring. But it's an artist who all his paintings, everything, um, like this one is of rain falling, and it's the Heart Sutra. Inscribed in tiny with a tiny fine brush. Sometimes use a brush, one 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 hair to write out the sutra, and it's all different things depicted in terms of um, the characters of the Heart Sutra. So, um, like this is one of lightning. I don't know if you can see that, and it's all those that lightning is made up of made up of characters of the Heart Sutra. It always just a complete oh, wow. recitation. It's just it's just an astounding art. Um, Love to see that. Yeah, I'll leave it here so that it's here next next week for people. But can um, pa can pass it around while we're we're doing these questions. So um, I know we're at twelve. So if anybody feels that they need to leave, that's that's just fine. And I guess we've just gone over time a bit. But the questions, just, we don't have to all answer all of them. But the first one I have on the list was. Have you had experiences of holding to nothing, whatever? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I remember once in, uh, in Sashin having having the sense of um, not not needing anything. So how, how I kind of thought of it, which I guess is the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't want anything anyway. <laughs> There's that sense of absence of wanting anything. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way, of, another good way of describing it, you know, or not not grasping at anything. Um, mm. For for me, sensei, when I felt like that, holding to nothing, whatever, when I uh, at the onset of my chronic illness. So at that time, I everything just seemed to dissolve, like even the earth, <laughs> the ground beneath me dissolved, my identity dissolved, and I, and it's very scary. It is a very scary place for me. It's just like, I can't hold on to anything. There aren't any branches. It's just like, just an abyss. But then I started realizing, hang on a minute. Okay, I'm in, on in, a, on a, in an abyss. It's groundless space. It's either I fall or I rise. So um, it's so the good thing about that is there's no ground. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I won't hit my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of thinking of it. And I think lots of people, I think, have that experience of coming to the edge of some kind of abyss, and and often having to pull back multiple times mm -hmm. from that edge. Yeah. Uh, because it, it is scary. Yeah, it uh, is still scary yeah. up to now. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't gone over it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's sort of like um, the dreams that um, I you can have of, of feeling like you're falling, you know, like you're yeah. in a dream and you feel like you've jumped off and you're just falling into to, um, nothing. But if you realise it's a dream and it's okay... If you yeah. were to realize it was a dream, you know. But isn't life but a dream? <laughs> yeah, that's one way of talking about emptiness, yeah. And, and illusory in some sense. 
How about the next question? Do you think a mantra or dharani can protect the mind? Has anybody had an experience of that kind of perfect? Oh, well, yeah, let's do that one first, and then we'll come back to how. Anybody ex had a had an occasion when, when, they used a a, um, a mantra or dharani in a situation, and then found that it gave, did yeah. give them kind of protection. I think it can detract you from your own fear, which is the thing that possibly will. Well, when I think about when you say protection, what are we protecting against? Yeah. So, and I wasn't clear on that. So we've got these matches, we've got these different things to protect us from, from what? Yeah, well that's the question. What do you think? Well, the only thing I can fathom is it's protecting you from your own fear because that's the thing that will either drive you mad or make you do something that is um, uh, harmful to yourself or others. Yeah, yeah. So protection from fear, but because I think it... it to protect you, and maybe that's what the story was saying, because he was protecting him from ghosts. They weren't there. <laughs> and so that's what your fear is. Your fear isn't there, but it will make you do stupid things if you let it. Yeah, or if you rip you. you apart, as they suggest. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so how does that work? How does a mantra protect us against our fears? I wonder if it focuses us on the mantra instead of where our fear is taking us, like ripping us apart. Exactly, yeah. That, that we have the mind is going all sorts of different directions and we put the mantra in the centre of our awareness and then it becomes like a, a focus and, and so then we can, calm, we can calm down because we're not being torn in different directions by our thoughts and that, yeah, and that's the way it works but it's, you could say that any, sing, any, any word could be a mantra you, you know, when we count the breaths that's kind of like a simple mantra um, but words that have have been used like over a long period of time by by you know generations of people um, have they're easier for us to connect to than than just random you know random things random words. So I wonder yeah. if it's not the mantra itself, but just the ability to hone in on a single thing rather than be divergent. Yeah. Yeah, mm. using a word to go beyond yeah. all the all the the words, all the stories we tell us. So, what about the opposite? Just to come to our last question, what about the opposite? Can words have negative power? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Mm. Yeah. You only have to see, um, you know, people chanting away, um, in, in like in a, like a mob in a hate. Situation. Yeah. Yeah. Inciting. Wet, inciting. Yeah. Yeah. And can be contagious, mm. and and end up, you know, inciting all kinds of mm. terrible things mm. through, through words. Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember, uh, <coughs> yeah, listening to a program on the. This is when I was a boy. Actually, it was, a, it was on the BBC in England. There's a, there's a there's a play, and it was all about um, a group of lads in Germany, just you know, 1930s. Just folk singers going into a little village and just singing away folk songs, but gradually they changed their songs and they're using words to incite the people until in the end they've got the whole village that was a nice friendly village were all into really Nazi slogans and stuff. Yeah. It was it was well done the way it was just slowly doing yeah. it and yeah. even listening to it you didn't realise what was happening until near the end. Wow, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they were using 
those Nazi slogans as mantras for that purpose? Yeah, they can. Yeah, some really powerful negative negative mantras. You don't need to look so far back, actually, mm -hmm. like what Trump is doing in the US. Yeah, Trump, that yeah, yeah. has such an impact to divide the country. Yeah. That's right. Just by his speech. Yeah, yeah, and gives it a permission yeah. to others to use those mantras, mm -hmm. those, those racist mm -hmm. mantras. Yeah. But on the positive so, side, the Prashna Paramita also encourages positivity and peace. Um, I think it adds to your practice. I've been chanting every morning, going through the chant book, chanting on the chants after I finish sitting. And I think it, it does do something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't tell you what it does, but I just feel like it's adding something yeah. subconsciously. Yeah. One of the things I think it works is it can, it can help us to tap into um, energies that are that are in, in a tradition, the tradition of the, the, art, the masters of the past. Um, we can kind of connect, make a connection with those, with those, um, that benevolence, you know, that sense of, of being held, um, not just holding, but also being held by by truth or benevolence mm -hmm. and so it's easier for us to find that same feeling in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Would it be more beneficial to chant before you sit or always after? Either. Mm -hmm. Either. Mm -hmm. yeah. Frustrations like are another thing. Oh, I'd like to add something to that, the Dharani. Um, one Dharani that I chant is the Om Mani Padme Om and then I, at the beginning I, because I don't really understand what it is so I just keep doing it om om and then i realize um after reading up about you know somatic um like um how to uh, something about my the chronic pain that i feel there's there's actually wisdom in that dharani and then i realize that the vibrations that the sounds create within our bodies can actually um, activate or tone the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is actually something that can help calm the body and help with um, facilitate the healing process so and I, I only realized that lately that wow there is wisdom in enchanting those words yeah mm. yeah it sounds like a good them? good good do you have to believe it no. You have to believe the words that end have said. And I feel like you you, you must have to because um, you must have to believe the negative words that end affect you negatively and positively. You'd have to, but would you, you'd have to believe them. Kind of like a placebo. You'd have to believe that it's working for it to work. Right? You probably have to have some level of belief to do it in the first place. The faith, I suppose. It yeah, but you don't. I don't think you need to have complete and utter utter faith. It's more like you can you can do it out of maybe some little bit of wanting confidence, to try it out or confidence, confidence. Faith, yeah. yeah, and then it, then doing it will help to increase your faith. Yeah. When I started years ago, I didn't understand anything about chanting at all. I just did the chanting, but the effects of it come through. It's, it's just the chanting, the yeah. words, and continuously doing it. It has, it has an effect. Whether you believe it or you don't believe it, eventually it has its effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're open. It's like, it's like you're tuning the radio station. 
to a certain frequency, mm. and so you're open to that frequency, and then, then it, it, you kind of there's enough of an opening there for it to start to have an effect. But I think you're right that you have to have some grain of of, of faith there to to start the process. It's like with the eightfold path, you know, it starts with right view. You have to have some understanding that you're suffering, and you want have to want to want to raise yourself out of that suffering to into the path. But you don't have to co complete understanding. You just need a little bit. It get you, can get you started. Yeah, what's the icon? Playing music can have the same effect. Maybe we should stop there. Thank you, everybody, for for participating. <coughs> and um, yeah, gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhisattva. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. That's insane, especially. <laughs> bye bye. No, because it's all post, you know, the Thai, the Buddhist, is, is classical, the Pali, the Pali yeah, Sutra. Yeah, so no, it's very, my heart sutra is very much part of the Mahayana. Yeah. Um, Stacey, I wonder if, if, if you um, know that Thich Nhat Hanh has a new book on the Yes, heart I do, but I don't have it. Yeah. So he's got a new translation of the Heart Sutra called the insight to the insight that brings us to the other shore. Yeah. Have you got a copy of that? Um, it's on the website. Um, and the book itself is actually some I borrowed from the library. So it's a, a hard copy book. Yeah. Yeah. Sometime I, I should get, get order it for the center because. Um, you're, you're off center there, buddy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. Is there anything need to bring for next week? Um, well, it's an optional donation. Yeah, for donor. Um, yeah. And, but until other than that, no, no. no. So sitting for an hour before. Sitting for anything, any from from four, so you don't have to arrive exactly at four. It's informal sitting, so yep. any amount, you know. Come at four or come at four thirty. So if we come, she can just sit in here and um, wait until we're finished sitting. Or um, if you're bringing her for the for the actual ceremony, then I would just come and and have her join. Maybe not do the informal sitting yourself, but just come at, at both at the same time and then come into the zendo so okay. that you she's not sort of singled out as being, yep. you know. True. Um, yeah, just bring her right in the zendo. She 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 doesn't meditate formally, right? No, but she's a devout Buddhist, and yeah. her her grandmother brought her up with some very strong Buddhist tendencies. Um, yeah, so just bring her right in the zendo from from just come like at five twenty or something like that. Can just put, take her right in the zendo, have her sit next to you. She's a little bit afraid though. It's just 
a temple. Chanting. I go to the, the, the Thai temples and do everything that she does in a Thai temple. Which one do you go to? The one on Sabulite Road? Is that the one? No, I haven't been to her. She wants me to take me to the Thai temple in Kelston. Kelston, yeah, that's yeah, the Sabulite Road. This afternoon, I'm going to go there. But no, I was just talking about the Thai temples in Thailand. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I was going to leave this here for people to look at, I think. You could just look at that as being a nano. It's a nano. Oh, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> parameter, isn't it? It's the nano. I feel like you have to be in a real contemplative state to even write it. So you put yourself in a meditation. He uses, yeah, yeah. It is. It's a form of another form of meditation.
entirely <laughs> when I came back for the second round. I was a little bit short <laughs> breath then. Something that I'll probably do too. <laughs> Performance anxiety. <laughs> Germany, oh, I'm yeah. very reluctant with with um, hitting. Yeah. Because uh, that's what in school we learned, like in about the Third Reich in Nazi time. And when Sensei was wondering, I said, "Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not sure about that." Oh, also, gosh. what other people would think yeah. if a German is standing behind them <laughs> with a stick. <sighs> that that probably plays plays into it, but. Yeah. Um, it, it might be more in my head, but that was a big thought that I had. Oh, I'm not sure if I should be doing that. And um, yeah, but it works surprisingly easy. Yeah, it, it works much better than I thought. When you look at it, like um, it, it's actually not much of a hit at all, really. Yeah. Although well, sometimes when you hear that loud clapping, then you wonder, oh, yeah, yeah, was it too hard? <laughs> yeah, but. Um, yeah, you're right. There's no real, no, there's no real <laughs> pain no. going on. It's uh, we'll be right.
hurry train, basically. Sure, yes. I just have to pack up. Oh, I'm not in a, I'm not in a hurry. And, oh, sh Can I help? <laughs> I didn't turn off. Did I turn this off?